Hi, this is Dan Mendes from NextGen Venture Partners, coming off a great conversation with Johnny Reinch, co-founder and CEO of Quill. Johnny and I talk about uh, his coming off of one of uh, one of the most interesting blockchain companies, uh, how he founded Quill, and how it's tackling a problem that most people uh, didn't anticipate with the freelance economy, the rising gig economy, which is contract workers who are waiting 60, 90, 120 days to get paid and how Johnny and Quill are coming in and addressing that problem and over time uh, looking to build a new financial institution that serves the freelance economy. So uh, I think this is a great conversation um, and I hope you enjoy it. Johnny Reinch, co-founder and CEO of Quill. Thanks so much for spending a little bit of time with me today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So let's start off uh, with your last job, if that's all right. So before founding Quill, uh, you were an SVP at Zappo, which I think is a fascinating company. Uh, tell us the story of, of that firm. Sure. So Zappo was founded by uh, Wences Casares, who's um, a, a financial services entrepreneur that uh, grew up in Argentina. And uh, he, with his background, came upon Bitcoin very early on in its uh its infancy, I think around 2009 or so. And he's actually credited with being uh, so-called patient zero for Bitcoin in Silicon Valley. Um, he he has a very sort of consumer lens on, um, on financial services in general and realized that for Bitcoin to really proliferate, you had to put you know a, a, some better wrapping on it, make it easier to use and sort of take out some of the main concerns that go along with holding a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin. So uh, Zappa built a proprietary vault um, that is incredibly good at securing small or even large amounts of Bitcoin. And so my job uh, essentially was to um, get institutional customers that uh, wanted to needed a custodial solution for, for storing Bitcoin. Um, and then also sort of on the more consumer side, if you wanted to think of it as uh, sort of the chase side of, you know, the JP Morgan uh, sort of private bank, et cetera. Um, was just pure user acquisition, and that was uh, doing partnership deals, finding good use cases for for Bitcoin, and then structuring our product so that that we could accommodate those. Uh, in general, Zappo, I, I think, is is really winning the game on on security, and that they really are making some really awesome use cases for uh, for consumer uses of Bitcoin as well through gaming, through social media integrations, and and the like. Very, very cool company. And if I remember correctly, they had some super secure facility in the mountains of Switzerland or something like that. How did that work? <laughs> yeah, the, um, it, it's it, you, that's just scratching the surface of, of the full solution. But um, yeah, it, they essentially built a, um, a data center in an underground military bunker that has these sort of crazy um, uh, uh physical, um, digital, et cetera, security things attached to it, including, you know, armed guards, uh, man traps, um, RFID tags, the whole, you know, nine yards. And uh, you, you could easily see this becoming, you know, like a Mission Impossible style movie at some point in the future. Um, but you're very, very hoping that, uh, that or the Zappo is certainly hoping that no one actually tries that, I presume. No Tom Cruise, you know, rappelling into that facility. It would be tough. Um and you know, given how the system works, just breaking into that that facility alone wouldn't quite cut it. So, um, you know, the, the system was built to handle that type of attack and many different other types of attacks. So it, it would be pretty pretty hard. But yeah, it's very cool. 
um, the, there's a massive vault door, for instance, on the outside that's a few feet thick and, and <laughs> all that fun stuff. How, how have usage rates of Bitcoin evolved relative to your expectations? Um, my, the metric that I follow most closely now, uh, and that's actually a hard question to answer because, uh, for instance, Coinbase, Zappo, some of the you know, major wallet providers, a lot of them have their own closed system that is off of the blockchain. So you're not, uh, you're not seeing the full uh, amount of Bitcoin volume. Uh, that is actually taking place because it's not actually all getting broadcasted on the chain. That sounds a lot like um, venture capital as well. <laughs> sure. Uh, the the thing I think is most interesting is uh, just the proliferation of other different crypto coins and and whatnot. And now we have uh, initial coin offerings that have been sort of making the market go bananas lately. Um, and there's some really really cool sort of infrastructure and middleware, what I would call technologies that are that are emerging as you know fairly dominant players. And, you know, off the top of my head, uh, I, Bitcoin sort of represents this really great store of value, at least in the, the crypto space. And then you have things like Ethereum that are starting to support, you know, uh, decentralized apps and the like. Um, and then, um, you know, things like Monero, Dash, Zcash, Ethereum Classic, et cetera, that all have their, their own sort of great use cases. Um, so it's been really fun to watch. So you're at Zappo. You have what I what I would see as a pretty interesting job going around talking to wealthy individuals, institutions, companies about uh, using uh, Zappo as sort of to sort of store and secure their their blockchain currency. Uh, How did you decide to leave and start a new company? Yeah, that was not an easy decision, frankly. Um, I, I love that team. I'm still you know in contact with them regularly. Uh, I I've always had some some sort of side hustle though. Um, and I'd been working on a financial services play or fintech, if we want to use the buzzword, um, with my co-founders, Trevor and Paul for a while. And, you know, as Bitcoin sort of entered the doldrums and we started to see, you know, a massive pullback and we kind of prepared to hunker down, it, it was a really great opportunity actually for, for me to break off and start Quill. Um, and in general, um, it was just, it was a matter of timing and sort of all the stars aligning all at once, you know, all my co-founders and I each were at a point where, you know, we could, uh, leave what we were doing at that time and uh, engage fully with, with Quill. So the founding stories of startups, I always find fascinating and, and they're, they're almost never, you know, they all, they all uh, have their own twists and turns. So there were three of you and you were thinking about different, I guess, different kinds of opportunities in, in financial technology. So first, how did you guys get together? How did you meet? Um, so Trevor, um, Quill's co-founder, um, uh, and sort of our, I call him the finance unicorn sometimes because he grew up in iBanking and just has a mind that can hustle and really do anything and everything related to finance or operations. Um, he was at a company previously called Boxfish, which we jokingly refer to as uh, Google for TV. Uh, and I was actually his M&A lawyer when we first met. And they were um, going through a few different processes on the M&A front, and I was advising them in my capacity as a lawyer at that time. Um, it, he, I, We obviously hit it off immediately, but um, what was interesting and what I thought was uh, – what I thought was really amusing, in fact, was he would invite me out to drinks um, and, you know, have a few cocktails. And then by like cocktail three, he would slip some M&A question, you know, uh, across the, the bar. And 
be like, okay, yeah, here's how I would handle that. So he would then get, he would have locked in some free legal advice. Uh, and then also he would get me to pick up the tab because he knew I had an expense account. So uh, in addition to, so you, you know, saving smart. his company a few thousand bucks, he also got free drinks. Yeah, he's, he's a hustler. Um, <laughs> and then Paul, our CTO and co-founder, he and I have been working on, uh, he and I met through this project that we're doing in San Francisco that's an SF-based brewery uh, that has a physical location that should open this year, in, in fact. And the, the brewers are all these sort of brilliant dudes that, you know, Paul's a, a software engineer and, and I would argue a polymath. Um, two others are sort of uh, PhDs or postdocs at, you know, great research institutions, UCSF and, and Berkeley. And another one is a, a software engineer that's working at Sean Parker's new sort of uh, cancer research institute. So brilliant, brilliant guys. And they needed a little bit of help on the business side. And so Paul and I sort of teamed up and started tackling some of the, the things around, you know, getting a brick and mortar, getting a, a deal with a restaurant group so we could actually, you know, run the front of the house without any sort of expertise around running a restaurant bar um, and, you know, doing the build out. And so he and I have been doing that for, you know, four or five years at this point when we were still brewing beer out of our kitchen. So. <laughs> Uh, and so was it beer inspired uh, that led to the idea for Quill? How did that come about? <laughs> Quill's pretty technical. I, I would bet that at some point we probably have thought that beer has given us good ideas around what to do with Quill, but um, it, it definitely requires a clear head. Um, I, While working in Bitcoin and working very much with decentralized teams, uh, it, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the best um, – uh, sort of blockchain engineers or cryptographers, they're very widely dispersed around the world. Yeah. And so to work with the best talent, uh, especially in that company, you really do have to be comfortable working with a remote team. And one of the pain points that we constantly had as um, you know, we were working with these folks was they were always c complaining about having to wait you know, net terms, 30, 45, whatever it was, days to get paid. Um, and I had started. I had already previously spotted the trend around, you know, more decentralized labor forces and uh, sort of a pull towards freelance, uh, and was thoroughly convinced on that. But I hadn't yet really put together the pain point of being a freelancer and having to wait. And so went pretty deep on that, and uh, we all three started to figure out, you know, what where we could add the most value on that. You know, was it was it with taxes? Was it with um, some sort of support service. Uh, and at the end of the day, what we realized was that it's really as simple as providing an option to get paid earlier where you otherwise don't have that option. And so that once we figured that out, it was more about, um, you know, finding the wedge into the market and seeing how we could help as many people as we possibly could. Today, what does Quill do? Who are its customers? Uh, how does it help solve their pain? Yeah, I mean, the headline is we help freelancers get paid super fast. Uh, and, and that sounds very simplistic, and, and it is, and the product experience sort of reflects it. Um, but so you're you're a freelancer, and you might be working for uh, as a high-end sort of uh, hired gun, software engineer, creative, etc. Um, you finish your product, and uh, unfortunately, the better the credit of the company you're working for, probably the longer your payment terms. So on the low end, you might wait 15 days to get paid. On the high end, you might wait 180 days to get paid. And uh, as a freelancer, you know, you're, uh, you have these individual expenses and whatnot. So, you know, car payment, rent or mortgage, probably some student loans or, or something like that. 
And those long protracted uh, invoice cycles don't really work for, for freelancers. Now, the rest of the folks that are incurring that cycle, those are you know high-end vendors and suppliers, and they have access to working capital credit and various other things that sort of commercial banks provide that freelancers just really don't have access to. So we take that the data of job work that's performed and you know allow freelancers to make the decision of okay I'll if I earned a thousand bucks I'll take nine ninety so a discount of ten dollars today so I don't have to wait for sixty days or whatever it might be. So you hear about sort of talent wars between Uber and Lyft and and the the challenge of getting um, you know getting good freelancers. Uh, how is it that companies can get away with these net, you know net ninety net one twenty kind of payment terms? Yeah, and um, that's actually one of the reasons why we are are, are very successful at um, sort of going in through the companies that that are are working with freelancers is there is this big push to sort of retain the best talent. And, um, you know, things like last mile delivery, we, we see it with Lyft and Uber where, you know, they are very much vying for as much of that, uh, as much of each driver's time as they can possibly get uh, so that they have that driver available to, to pick people up. On the, at the sort of marketplace level, it's very, very difficult for any marketplace to justify, you know, not having a service where someone can take cash in advance if they want to. Um, I, I would imagine that, the, the major marketplaces that you might think of off the top of your head are going to have an instant pay option, uh, you know, if they don't already, but they will very soon. On the the other side of the spectrum, where it's sort of more long term protracted cycles, and these are probably uh, very highly skilled uh, freelancers that are that are working for you know massive companies. We'll, we'll call it Fortune 100s. Um, <laughs> They don't have a good justification, and uh, they're definitely starting to think about this, but they still have this bad infrastructure that's probably run by an underlying ERP and with a very complicated procurement system and then you know, a, a massively complicated payables process that even despite their better efforts, just doesn't accommodate sort of getting people paid out faster. And so that's where we come in and we can ease that burden and also help those companies really retain the best and brightest talent and keep their uh, their freelancers happy. You found this really clear pain point of getting the freelance talent paid faster, but there's always a, a bigger vision there. So what's yours? Where's Quill in 10 years? I, it, to me, the, the problem is much bigger than simple cash flow. Um, I, I stayed as a 1099 while being the CEO for Quill for about the first year of our existence. Um, I wanted to incur an entire tax year and figure out sort of what things came up during that time that were difficult as a, as a 1099 in the US. Um, what I found was that, you know, categorically, a freelancer, whether you're US based and have access to more traditional banking uh, services and the like, or someone based down in Argentina or um, the Pacific Rim, you are necessarily underbanked, uh, and some are even unbanked. And so I'll give you a good example. I tried to refinance my mortgage uh, while I was doing this, and the rate that I was offered from the bank that I had worked with for years at that point uh, was multiple points above what I was currently paying when I knew what it should have been otherwise. And my banker, you know, apologetically was like, you know, just employ yourself by your company, and your rate's going to be this uh, or estimated, and. 
uh, I came into that so many times just through conversations uh, and the outreach that we did while doing research on Quill. It, this is a massive pain point that there just aren't uh, there aren't the same financial services available to freelancers as there are for for sort of more fully employed or full time employees. And so the big goal is to be able to provide those financial services with a much better user experience, much more convenient. Uh, and to any freelancer, wherever they work, whether it's U.S.-based or, or abroad. So uh, you've got financial services, which obviously the, the you know faster cash is one of them. You can imagine you know uh, mortgages. You can imagine four hundred one ks, a whole host of things that freelancers don't have access to that traditional full time employees do. What about things like? Healthcare benefits, paid vacation. Right now, there are so many things that uh, full-time employees take for granted that they're sort of part of a you know almost like corporate welfare, right? You get all these great things that the traditional freelancer doesn't. Could you be part of a solution um, that provides freelancers all those kinds of benefits as well? Yeah, and that that certainly gets to be more lofty, and there are certain pieces of that that. Um, we would never endeavor to provide directly, but there are a lot of great partnership opportunities. And luckily there are a lot of great companies that are out there tackling some of those individual problems like health and welfare insurance. Um, I, I would love to see a company under, figure out how to provide a disability insurance policy for freelancers. We would, we already have uh, demand for that from, from our freelancers. So, you know, those are all things that we would love to provide. Our angle on this is always through financial services. Um, and underwriting and providing access to, you know, being able to store value, being able to transmit value, and uh, obviously being able to uh, 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 have access to credit lines and the like. Um, but yeah, no, that those are all insurance, health and welfare, uh, tax withholding, tax preparation services, accounting help, et cetera. Those are all great things that, um, you know, as a, a full-time employee, you might take for granted that are all sort of happening for you in the background. Uh, and that we ultimately want freelancers to have access to. See, you have this incredible rise of the gig economy. You have uh, enabling services like yours that are emerging uh, to help facilitate that. Can you give us a sense of how big is it and the, just the gig economy generally, and then where do you see it going over the next five or ten years? Sure. It, it's hard for me to um, to estimate what sort of – I view gig as sort of a subset of broader um, 1099 or freelance uh, but assuming you know you're looking at that broader sort of category, um, Freelancers Union and, and Upwork recently did a study that ballparked the U.S. opportunity and and growth of two million or so over the last year, from 53 million to 55 million total. And then our own estimates for more broadly uh, uh, globally are that there are about 300 million freelancers that are working. Um, uh, out there today, earning about $3 trillion of earnings annually. And just so I understand that, the U.S. data, so 55 million peop, uh, workers and is, who are, I guess, primary, earning their primary you know, uh, wages through uh, freelance work. Is that right? It's a mix of, um, Got it. uh, and the segmentation is tough, but uh, it's a mix of you know, self-identified professional freelancers. They might identify as self-employed. All the way down to folks that are just supplementing their their income uh, with sort of gig work here and there. 
Got it. And you know, mo- most you mentioned this already. There's some higher end, you know, freelance work out there, but most people associate it with you know u- u- driving a driving a car or you know delivering groceries through Instacart. Do you see uh, a significant growth potential in the higher skilled um, segment, and and where is that going over time? Absolutely. And um, from low to high skilled, you know, the the pain points around financial services are still the same. Uh, I think the self-identified professional freelance segment, uh, at least initially, is what we focus on. And uh, that's still tens of millions of folks in the U.S. and um, uh, far more than that abroad. And I I think as more and more, if you look at, let's take a law firm, for instance, and I can speak to this because I used to work at one and I used to think it was incredibly inefficient. (laughs) But... You know, everybody. So, so that's, your clients, by the way, or at least when we see those, uh, that we saw those. I mean, of course, now you're, I'm sure, hiring ex, uh, external counsel. Uh, but when you see those bills, you think, gosh, there, there must be a better way. Yeah, no, 100%. And a lot of the reason why law firms are so expensive is they're capitalizing on some information arbitrage. Um, they provide this really robust ecosystem for the attorneys that are working there, um, give you sort of these uh, access to all these resources, um, technology. Um, uh, precedent, you know, all these great things. And it, it really does turn out a very good work product. But there's really no reason for, you know, some firms have thousands of attorneys sitting under one roof. When I was doing cross-border M&A deals, you know, I could have easily run those as a one-man shop that was farming out various segments of that expertise, like employment or tax or, or what have you, to other one-man shops that were experts in those fields. And I, I could have run it that way. And I started to notice that. And I, I realized that there are many, many other professions that that would work for as well. Um, and so if you look at professional services, for for instance, there's a massive opportunity for, for folks to go freelance and still provide that same value, but have it be much more cost effective and the services delivery probably much more white glove, frankly. So I think you know one of the reasons that law firms or corporations exist generally is the transaction costs associated with uh, contracting, you know, here and the, here and there, and um, uh, and I guess I'd like to think that those transaction costs are going down over time. Um, we're talking now by Skype, and that certainly is one of the, one of the kind of enabling technologies that allow that that keep tra- those transaction costs low. Although it's not perfect, we were just complaining about video chat uh, before we started this podcast. So I guess I'm curious, you know. Are there any key enabling technologies or key, you know, maybe legislation that needs to change or you'd like to see change in order to uh, allow the freelance economy to flourish? That's a tough question. I mean, there's there's a there's a lot out there, but I, I think a lot of the enabling technology already exists. Um, for instance, at Quill, uh, we as a policy, we say it's totally fine if you want to go travel somewhere and work out of you know some cool city that you've never. Um, visited, we encourage that stuff because you really don't have to physically be here in order to perform your job, especially for our software engineers. You know, we use uh, GitHub and um, you can check in and out your code really anywhere that you have a secure internet connection. So as far as, you know, how I used to run deals um, as an M&A lawyer, anything that I would have needed uh, in order to manage that deal process properly with a cross-border team uh, we already have, and the the technologies work pretty well. Now that said, I, I wouldn't. I, I would love to see the government step in and provide some, um, you know, additional protections for for freelancers, a la, you know, um, 
disability insurance and, and things like that, things that you just really don't have access to as a freelancer. Um, or if the private market could come up with some great solutions for that too, I would I'd be very excited about that. But in general, I think the framework and the structure is there. It's the, the shift that's occurring. And uh, I think we're going to see gain even more traction over the next few years. Johnny, thanks so much for spending a little time with me. Sure thing. Thanks for having me.